welcome to the 25th episode of the official Espigan podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is a uh, very well-known pediatric gastroenterologist with a particular specialty, I think, in endoscopy. And we're going to touch on several aspects of endoscopy, what it can be used for, how to use it. Right, Mike Thompson. Mike Thompson, trained in Edinburgh and then south of the border, has been work as a professor in Sheffield and also at the Royal Free in London. Have I got those right? Um, just uh, just at Sheffield, and then I, I do a bit of work in London uh, in the private sector. But yeah, okay. I used to be at the Royal Free with John Walker Smith many years ago. All right. I was working perhaps with an older version of your CV. Who knows? He has some good news. News that we news about a topic on which we touched some while ago in one of the earlier podcasts in this series. Diagnosis, Management, and Prevention of Button Battery Ingestion in Childhood, a European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition position paper. When we spoke with Lissy de Ritter, she was very keen on bringing this topic to this audience. And Mike proposed that as one of the, t- one of the articles to which he contributed and which he'd like to bring up as well. I think the key message of that paper was get it out as soon as possible. And if it makes its way beyond the pylorus within the first 48 hours, then it's probably okay not to go after it. But that first two hours is really essential. Of course, the best thing of all would be to make sure that there are no button batteries within toddler hand-to-mouth range. And Mike tells me that there's legislation making its way through the British Parliament that is aimed to do just that. Tell us more. Well, thanks, Alex. Um, We've had uh, the Australian legislation and then only about a month ago, the American legislation and the UK legislation led by a lady called Joe Gideon, an MP, is getting its second reading in the Houses of Parliament. So hopefully that will be on the statute books not too far away. And it's all about packaging. Um, And that sadly came from a a young lady called Harper Lee who who died from ingesting one of these. And her parents had the Harper Lee Foundation. They pushed for this to occur. And so we've just been... um, attempting to get the European Parliament to listen to us with Lissy de Ridder and Christos Zivinikas and myself and a few others um, in the ESPGAN button battery task force uh, and hopefully we're going to get some legislation through in Europe as well as the UK in the not too distant future because these things are as we know lethal. What does the legislation specify about the handling of button batteries and has it gone far enough in your opinion? No it's not gone far enough in, in any of the countries yet actually. The Stipulation is really around the um, objects that the button batteries go into them so that they're made to be child-unfriendly and the packaging. But unfortunately, the big problem, as you know, is when they're spent or so-called spent batteries that are left around and they still have enough voltage to cause significant damage to the esophagus and kill. And it's these ones that we're trying to get um, legislation which hasn't yet been... Um, 
uh, attempted to where you, like if you can imagine it's something called a back guard if you put a um uh, in a, a supermarket trolley you put your money in to get the supermarket trolley out but these these are now packaging where you have to put an old battery in to get a new battery out so there's none left lying around and that really is the is the key to this whole issue so we're hopeful that we'll we'll keep knocking on the door of of the red legislators and and around the world and the big problem is that these, you know, the, the button, the button battery companies getting them to come on board. So that these are these are key things for us in in Europe and in, in the UK. Right. That's one aspect of endoscopy is how to inv- how to avoid endoscopy, how to make endoscopy to sa- to salvage an esophageal crisis unnecessary. But there's there are times when the crisis is upon you. And you don't know whether you should be doing endoscopy or not. I'm talking, of course, now about acute upper gastrointestinal hemorrhage. That's a real problem in kids. I mean, there are guidelines for when you should sit back, when you should wait, when you should give it a little bit of time, and there are guidelines for when you should jump on that kid, jump on that adult with your endoscope. But such guidelines. Are they available yet for kids? Yes, yeah, so very good question. We've we've published a couple of years ago from Sheffield the Sheffield scoring system for GI hemorrhage, which essentially requires a certain threshold. Um, and we we had two sets of patients, and ones that we determined needed intervention when we did the endoscopy, and ones ones that didn't. And we were able to produce a a valid scoring system to to determine when when and emergently endoscopy was required um, and it was based on things like transfusion requirement resuscitation large hematemesis melina and this sort of thing uh, and, and it's got a robust uh, scoring system so we're pretty much um, we know that we we can we can determine when it's necessary but the big problem the big problem and this is what I'm, I'm always harping on about is that there's a postcode lottery across the UK and Europe in terms of the ability of the endoscopists to actually do something when they find a big bleeder. And, and it's very variable across the, across the training. So we, we're really pushing now in ESPGAN for the GI bleeding training um, to be a, a very important part of our, of our training structure. And we run big courses for these now, not least the endoscopy learning zone at ESPGAN annual meeting, which is this year in Vienna. So, yeah, re- really important to get everybody on the same page in terms of GI bleeding treatment. There's a bit of, bit of a game changer recently, and that's something called hemospray which is um, a little bit of a much easier technique to, to use than the clips or the argon plasma coagulation or any of the more sophisticated techniques. And you basically spray this powder onto a GI bleeding area and it makes uh, immediate hemostatic contact. So, so the, there are developments that are really exciting, but it, the most important thing, in my view, is, is to get people trained properly and, and get kids dealt with immediately if, if they have a catastrophic bleed. Now, my question is, since 2015, when you presented that set of diagnostic guidelines, have they been widely adopted? What's the uptake among pediatric gastroenterologists? Are people using them? Well, we're using them in the what the Americans would call the emergency department, or A&E, um, and rolling them out across the UK. We're coordinating... Uh, a larger study with uh, some of the North Americans to try to do a prospective 
a prospective study. Um, and really, uh, the more that people understand that the adult guidelines are um, really not applicable to paediatrics, the more we hope they will take up this particular guideline, because there isn't another one out there for children. Where do they diverge? What are the points that well, are then, going to yeah. mislead a paediatric GI person? Good, good, good question. Well, you, you will know that um, a lot of the guidelines, the, um, the, they rely upon other parameters, such as a different heart rate or the presence of urea or whether there's cardiac failure or whether the person has had coronary artery disease. All these things that are mainly adult-orientated, which are totally irrelevant, of course, to children. Gotcha. Okay, you've got the guidelines, you've got the, but you don't have enough kids to train people. Are you going to come up with a, a GI bleeding resusciani? We have one. Yes. Uh, no, you don't. Yes. Come on, now. okay. Tell me more. <clears throat> yeah, this so is we, your training. This is your training dummy, huh? Yeah, but it, what we have is explanted pig stomachs, and we we sew, sew into oh. those little little hoses, and then we can oh. pump out cherry juice, um, and then then the endoscopist can get a chance to. To, uh, to train on the on the on this, um, there are there are other models as well which are electronic, but these are the most most lifelike. Those and, are lifelike yeah. for sure. You know, I'm going to resort to my best American. Get out of here, <laughs> pig stomachs <laughs> and cherry juice. <laughs> Sounds like, like a nice Hungarian recipe. <laughs> You're cutting close to the bone, there, Kai. Cutting close to the bone. Uh, <laughs> Oh, dear. Hungarian cooking. First take something that used to be a pig. Yep, that's that's where it begins and ends. Um, where do we go from that particular discussion point? Well, I think we go to training and to cross-coverage and to the need for adult gastroenterologists to who have a good deal of experience in handling acute GI bleeding to know what to do when the pediatric GI person is on holiday or off at a meeting and a kid comes in with acute GI hemorrhage. How are you going to organize cross-training as well as cross-coverage? Yeah, well, we've published the ESGE, which is the adult organization for endoscopy, and ESPGAN co-published um, the guidelines on this a couple of few years ago now, five years ago, in fact. And, and now we have um, the invidious position of when you're in a standalone children's hospital and you're running things that's fine but a lot of the patients sort of come into bigger hospitals and then the, the inadequacy of pediatric training sometimes means that the adults are involved and the adults don't want mm -hmm. to be involved especially with small children so we run uh, in Sheffield for instance we run two-day courses for adults and uh, pediatric gastroenterologists and we've got one coming up soon where we have a GI bleeding with models and so forth and the first day is, is, is all adult guys and we teach on that and the second day is all children's doctors and the, the adults t teach on that so there's a, there's a, a bit of a, a, a movement towards co-training I think that's really important as you say Alex because you, you will be in the situation sometimes where you've got an adult gastroenterologist who's, who's not prepared for reasons that may be insurance or they're not familiar with the environment or in fact the pathologies that children have uh, not wanting to, to do these on a, on a child and, and and you may be in the position where you know in this in the less 
uh, or the, the smaller centres, should we say, where you don't have paediatric gastroenterologists with the expertise, so the child is left betwixt and between these situations. My real um, push, I think, for, for the UK, uh, for instance, is that we have four or five big centres where children are transported so that uh, they all get decent treatment by, by um, very technically able paediatric endoscopists. And I think that probably is, is the way that we should be going, centralisation. And that could be rolled, that should be rolled out across, across Europe as well, I believe. I think you might find, although I can certainly be off base here, that that works theoretically, and I hope concretely, in a single-payer environment. But in Germany, for example, there are multiple... Um, financing organizations, and many hospitals uh, see particular sets of patients as income sources, which militates against transferring patients out. So that one really needs um, to look at healthcare economics before centralization can be practiced as widely as possible. Have, am I off base there? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that is the problem with, with trying to mandate a certain system across the whole of Europe because you've got such disparate health systems. You're absolutely right. But, but I think the challenge is, is to get around that because if a child ends up in a place where the expertise isn't available, you know, this is the last time in, in our paediatric uh, medicine where a child would die because of the lack of the skill of the doctor rather than the actual disease severity itself, if that makes sense. It does, it does. So which are the which are the forms of GI bleeding then that can actually lead to a fatal outcome? It's been it's been so long since I've encountered such a case, I must say. Diffuse viral gastritis and diffuse gastric hemorrhage perhaps or a uh, how often do children vomit so severely that they induce a tear? Yeah, well, as you as you will know, coming from a liver centre, you, you, the varices, of course, are important. Varices. Um, then you've got the post-influenza A, severe, diffuse hemorrhagic gastritis. And the, the other one we've already mentioned today is, is the button batteries. So you must, if a child oh. comes in with a big hematemesis, oh, you must do a chest X-ray. Because otherwise you'll you'll miss that eventuality. Because a lot of the time they swallow them and you don't see them swallowing them. If that makes sense. Okay, a chest X-ray. And right now you're thinking about erosion through the esophageal wall into a great vessel there in in the tiger country of the mediastinum. Absolutely right. And unfortunately, <sighs> oh. they get stuck at the aortic notch, the bigger ones, and that's that's the worst place for them to get stuck. Wow. Well, we've got guidelines in place. We've got training programs in place, the numbers are the numbers of people who are to be considered adequately trained, both externally and in the, from the point of view of self-confidence, are they approaching reasonable levels, are the distributions approaching reason, reason, uh, are the distributions approaching region, reasonable levels? Well, you, you have always got a problem with volume of an, ex right. an exposure of, of people to the number of cases. And that's why another good reason for having a centralization effect, because you can run a 24-hour service with people that are competent. Uh, and yes, people are getting competent, but only in the big centers, because it's all about the numbers they see. Isn't it? Okay. Well, there we are. We've had a little uh, tour d'horizon 
of endoscopy and the emergencies that are associated with the need for endoscopy and when to move to endoscopy. And now, do you know, I used to date a woman who was a veterinary student and she mocked me. She said, you're just a one species doctor. What do you call, what do you want about? Uh, but um, Mike, you're not a one species doctor anymore. Not anymore. You do endoscopies on dogs. Tell us about that. Yes, as they say, a funny story uh, comes to mind. I was in Australia working with uh, with the guys in Brisbane, and um, I worked there for about five or six years, learning my endoscopy trade. And there was a girl who kept coming in with repeated Helicobacter infections. Um, and we found out when we did EM of the mucosal biopsy of the stomach that actually it was a much longer Helicobacter organism than you would expect for pylori. It was used to be called Gastrospirillum hominis, or now called Helicobacter hilmani, and you only found that previously in cats and dogs. Stop, and stop, stop, stop. I am so proud of my guild of the electron microscopists who act, but what possessed you to move to electron microscopy of those bugs? Well, we, we thought they were looked at a normal histology. You'll, you'll know this yeah, more, yeah. better than anyone. Um, and they were they were about twice the length of the normal helicobacter. Uh -huh. And and so the, the, the histopathologist said, well, why don't we do EM? We'll, we'll find out a little bit more about this. Right. And so we, we did. And it, it, was, it, was, um, it was quite fascinating. So we then, like you, we had a, a, a researcher on our staff uh, called Rustin Greer. She was a vet uh, who was doing some work with, with us. And, um, and she said, well, let's take an old endoscope and, and we'll go out to the farm in the outback where, where this, this and we'll do, we'll do endoscopy on the cats and the dogs and on the farm. On the kitchen table. <clears throat> we were in a barn. And, <laughs> okay. um, and I, I, I tell you, it was quite entertaining because I'm, I'm no, I know you've got a cat, but then sadly the story goes that the, uh, the, the cat was going a bit blue when I was doing the endoscope. And I said to, hey, said hey, to Rustin, hey, hey, okay. oh, God, well, Rustin, blue this cat you know we don't have that in pediatrics and she said oh mate if the cat makes up with a bit of brain damage who's gonna know and i was like oh what? that is so not on that is... <laughs> and so the the the, the denouement is basically we took biopsies from the cats and the dogs we found the organism in the dogs we treated the dogs and the girl at the same time and hey presto print paper in the lancet and she got better and never got ill again so it was a, it was a great story it's a great that story. It's a great story. So there we have it. Endoscopy, the cure for all ills, men or beast. Indeed. All right. Um, so born in Yorkshire, father Scott, trained in Edinburgh, down to Sheffield, and uh, dabbles in private work in London. You've got your choice of nations there, don't you? All through Britain. Which of those has produced the song that you'd like to share with us as a little bit of a reminder that Espagan is supranational, but it's also very intensely national, country by country? What's the song you'd like us to hear? Well, I was going to go with uh, Three Little Birds by Bob Marley, but I think we've had the, uh, the, the football recently, which isn't my sport, I'm more rugby. Um, and, and the reason I've chosen Sweet Caroline is because last week I was I was playing the Grinch in the in the local pantomime in Sheffield, and we finished off the whole 
pantomime with uh, with Sweet Caroline. And um, it's not like it's my favourite song, but it's just a very, very poignant memory. If, if I was going to do Desert Island Discs, that would be one of my choices. Um, Selma, are we going to hear him singing along or are we going to go with the Neil Diamond version? <laughs> Looks like we're going to go with the Neil Diamond version. To listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Thank you so much for making yourself available to Espigan and to this podcast series. I've enjoyed myself thoroughly and I hope you have too. Yeah, great to talk to you. Thanks a lot.